An Air Transat A330 is doing a flight over the Atlantic when they need to emergency land. What caused this flight to make an unexpected landing? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Things. Stuff. Listener stories. We're still taking those. Yep. We have gotten a few. We have. We just still don't have enough for a full episode. How many yep. do we have now? Five? Six? Something like that. Ooh, we have a couple questions, by the way, for the end of this episode. Yes. Like three. Oh, <laughs> or God. four. I know of at least two. A few of them are pretty short. Spock's is a little long-winded. But okay. We will answer all of them because we should have time to do so. That's so. fine. So that's happening. We are recording on September 11th. We are. It is that day. This is the day. Yes. So, that's a thing. If we want to take a moment of silence, that's gonna get cut. Oh, <laughs> never mind. I was trying to do a good thing. <laughs> I know. So, just. It's a little late for y'all who are listening, but. Yep. Being a little late. Oh, that's okay. We figured it out not halfway through the episode. Right. <laughs> Other than that. There's newsletters. You can get ducks. Yep. I we mean, did send ducks out. We did send ducks out. So if you have not gotten your ducks in a while, you should be getting your ducks. Thank you to yes. Paige for helping with all of these things. Yes. Oh things. my gosh. Thank you so much, Paige. Paige is definitely being a world of help, and we are going to be far more on top of things because of all of this. Having just a whole extra person worth of help is unbelievable. <laughs> and thank you to everyone for all of your listener support. That is how we are able to pay Paige. Yes. And if you would like to... Join Patreon or contribute in any way whatsoever by merch, whatever. It helps us continue to grow and do these things and also be able to support Paige in supporting us. So <laughs> the more you contribute, the more we can probably contribute to Paige. So that is a great help, and we really appreciate it. We really do. It really helps things flow for us. Oh, by the way, all the information for that stuff is on the website. It is. There's links and tabs and things for merch and for the Patreon and everything that's included and all that stuff. We are doing our Patreon calls for September today. We are recording between them. So that is one of the perks you get if you go all the way to the very, very top at our $20 tier. You get to do Zoom calls with us once a month, and they are a load of fun. We spent over two hours on our first one today with three people in it today from all over the world from all over the world which was phenomenal and it is so much fun we had so much fun talking we had many a laugh and many a good story we talk about aviation but also everything else <laughs> yes we were avidly paying attention to the steelers Bengals game today <laughs> to be fair it was toward the end of the game it was and <laughs> things were crazy if you heard about it so that's not just aviation. Right. We, we talk about everything. We literally talk about everything and anything. That being said, if you've increased your patronage to be a $20 patron, first of all, thank you. But second of all, we may not have included you in an email that has those informations. The link is always in the Patreon yes. Post. groups, posts. I yes. always put them in there in case you didn't get an email or you missed the email or whatever because we suck you don't need to tell us that you're attending although we ask that you try to make sure you do so that we are right. aware so that if we don't need to be there right <laughs> no at the very least if you can tell us which ones you're not <laughs> attending because mm -hmm. <laughs> that is very useful for us mostly because we've had quite a few instances actually where 
maybe one of them, like we didn't have a lot of people that would attend in that time zone. And because we do two of these for the many different time zones around the world that we don't know because there's only a few of you that we wait for to hear from for that one. And then we don't hear anything. So we sit for 15 minutes and wait. And it's not the end of the world. But then when nobody shows up after 15 minutes, like we're gone. Cool. We're done. So again, like I said, it's not the end of the world. But if you could tell us no, then we won't. Yeah, it'll help a lot. Do it. <laughs> Paige may eventually pop into those if you ever want to meet them. Yes. So that's a thing, too. Leo occasionally pokes his head in. Occasionally. It's been known to happen. The most frequent guests are the dog and the cats. (laughs) Yeah. For these. But they are a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to actually interact with our audience one-on-one. And we've even met some of these patrons. Yeah. In person. Actually in person. So these are the kinds of things like just join. If you'd like. (laughs) That's some, some of the stuff included. Right. Along with, you know, various merch items and things. Yep. So just keep that in mind. All right. I think that's it for housekeeping, right? I think that's all right now. There's not a whole lot else. Are we? We're just busy with everything else in life right now. Yeah. So if you want to hear a little bit about that, you can stay till the post episode. It, it's hard for us to kind of conjure up all the many things that we need to talk about here. It's not a whole lot has changed, but everything outside of this is kind of crazy. Yeah. So. Just a little bit. So. All right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Air Transat Flight 236. Thanks to... Thanks to Brett. Brett. Thank you, Brett. For recommending this episode. This accident occurred on August 24th of 2001. Also very close to... September 11th. Yeah. Which is probably why most people haven't heard of this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Everyone's heard of another incident very similar to this one. Which we've covered before. Yes. Miranda is vaguely aware of what happens in this episode. Only because they told me. Yes. (laughs) But it's kind of really ironic because we had been talking about it not two days before I found out this was the episode we were recording the week we were recording it. So... We had already been kind of talking about it, and I didn't know that it was on the schedule immediately. (laughs) So, yeah. She knows vaguely what happens, but she doesn't know the details. I do not know the details. So, that is okay. And yes, that is probably a big part of why most people don't know about this, but it is not small. This is quite the thing. It is actually. This was an Airbus A330-200 with the tail number Charlie-Golf-India-Tango-Sierra. That is a Canadian tail number. It is a Canadian tail number because this is a Canadian airline that still exists. Freaking Canada. Air Transat. They are generally a sun destination and cheap Europe getaway for Canadians. Hey, guess where it was flying? <laughs> yep. Europe. <laughs> yep. That said, I believe they are the still the third largest airline in Canada after Air Canada and WestJet. Hmm. This was a flight from Toronto to Lisbon in Portugal, so it is transatlantic. Haven't we talked about Lisbon before? Probably. It sounds familiar. I mean, it's the capital of Portugal. (laughs) But I didn't think we covered... Maybe it was a flight that went from Lisbon to something else. I don't know. We've probably talked about Lisbon before. I don't know. There's been a plethora of things that have happened in that part of the world. So like I said, this is on an Airbus A330, so this is a two-man crew aircraft... It was very new at the time, actually. Well, not very new, but newer at the time. In 2001, it was particularly new for Air Transat. And I'm actually amazed how many seats they had on this A330 in particular. 
they were cramming them in there because this is the shorter version of the A330, and they still had well over 300 seats on this airplane. Oh, good grief. I think it was like 326 or something like that. But it is a twin-engine, wide-body, long-haul aircraft. Mm. We've talked about them in the past. I know. I It was Quite probably a, a stopover or something. Yeah, yeah. The captain for this flight is Robert Pichet. He was 48 years old. He had 16,800 hours total at the time, of which 796 hours were on the A330. So very few on the A330 out of his pretty sizable amount of hours. The A330 wasn't new, right? It was relatively new, but oh. it was new to Transat. Oh, well. It, it was introduced to the world in 1992. Well, right. its first flight was 1992. Its introduction to service was in 1994. Right. Oh, okay. So, so it had been around for a while, but... And they're still Less being... than 10 years, though. Right. Yeah. But it had only been with Transat for two. Okay. So, because actually this was one of the very first ones they had. This A330, and it was only about two years old at the time. Airbus is still making A330s, in case you're wondering. They are, but they do not make the A330CO, as it's called now. Which stands for Current Engine Option, according to Wikipedia. Right, that's the original version of the A330. They now make the Neo, and that is it. Mm. So they only make the Neo versions. Which has sharklets. Yes, curved ones. They're nice. Much larger engines, too. First officer for the flight is Dirk de Jaeger. He was 28 years old at the time. At the time, he had 4,800 hours total, of which 386 were on the A330. So neither one of them had very many hours on the A330 at all. No, and he has significantly less hours than the yep. captain. He had about half. Wait, how many? Wait, captain had like 16,000. How many did the first oh, Well, Oh, yeah, his total time? Oh, yeah, no, he had about a third. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's not half. <laughs> no, he had about a third. He had about a half of the experience. Actually, he had almost a quarter. Oh. Between a third and a quarter. Yeah. But half on the A330? Correct. Oh. Yeah, half as many hours on the A330. Got it, got it, got it. In Toronto, the airplane was prepped for the transatlantic flight. 293 passengers and 13 crew boarded the flight. Again, this has seats for well over 300, so it wasn't full. The captain was to be the pilot flying for this flight, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. I am vaguely surprised that there wasn't... A relief crew. Right mentioned anywhere because it's a little long it's a long flight although i'm not sure that it actually surpassed eight hours so they probably didn't need it mm. <laughs> yeah isn't that kind of crazy <laughs> let me look this ish up i don't think they probably did seven hours and ten minutes look at that ah so they, they don't need a relief crew. didn't need a relief crew. they can do it in one shot that's good pay <laughs> that's a great flight because you actually sure. do it yeah yeah, except it would be nice to take the break, but, you know, it's not bad. The flight was scheduled to depart at 8.10 p.m. local time from Toronto. The flight actually took off at 8.52 p.m. local time, so 42 minutes late. This isn't entirely abnormal with long-haul flights still to this day. Or for Toronto. <coughs> yeah, yeah. But also for long-haul flights in general across the ocean or anywhere in the world, they just tend to seem to always take forever to... Leave. Leave. Even They'll even, like, push back from the gate on time, and then it just takes forever for the rest of the process to happen all the way to take off. Please leave. Please leave. Right. Once airborne, the flight climbed to cruising altitude normally and began crossing the Atlantic Ocean on its transatlantic journey a little while later. The flight proceeded normally for four hours and 11 minutes of its journey. The flight had just crossed 30 degrees west latitude over the middle of the Atlantic at 5.03 a.m. UTC and local time, where they were, 
So it's both. The flight crew noticed an unusual oil indication for the number two or the right engine. Well, that's not good. No. Note, it was an oil indication. Kind of strange. Like, make it all the way over there and have a weird oil indication. Yeah. The crew reviewed the engine page on the ECAM, or Electronic Centralized Aircraft Monitoring System. We've talked about the ECAMs before, but it is the literally just the computer that calculates many a thing, as well as informs the crew of many a thing, since it is attached to the many sensors on the yes. airplanes. This is very common with the digital aircraft age, and the A330s were very much fly-by-wire in digital aircraft. So they were reviewing the engine page of the ECAM. The crew then used the high-frequency radio to speak with a company dispatcher at their maintenance control center in Mirabel, Quebec, Canada, to discuss what they noticed. So that's some range. 5.33 a.m., an advisory message displayed on the digital engine display. The flight crew noticed this advisory, and they selected the fuel page in the ECAM, at which time they were made aware of a fuel imbalance between the left and the right inner tanks. The crew reviewed their flight manual for the aircraft and began a checklist related to a fuel imbalance. They actually did this, I found out, they did do this from memory. I know. Yeah. They did do this from memory, but they did eventually refer to the checklist, but not right away. Hmm. I'll get into that a little bit more later, why they did it from memory. As yes. That's not normally a thing you do by memory. That's slightly suspicious. I can go over right. it now. They did it a lot in training. Like, it was a huge focus point in training to be like, you have a fuel imbalance, here's what you do. Oh. Which isn't all bad. It's good to commit some of this stuff to memory, but we'll get to it later. Because there's, there's some key things here that should have happened. Well, there's like a big problem in the fact that there's a fuel imbalance, period. Yes. <laughs> You're not wrong. You are correct. That shouldn't happen. Right. They then selected the cross-feed button on the fuel panel to open, which opened the cross-feed valve, and then they turned the right fuel pump to off on the fuel control panel, which would allow the tanks to balance as fuel would feed from the left tank to the right engine until the left and right fuel tanks were balanced. So basically, there was more fuel in the left tank. They were pumping from the left tank to both engines only and not using the right tank at all. So then they were burning the fuel in the left tank down until it met the right tank. That's pretty smart. It's pretty simple physics, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like something has to go wrong because clearly something happened. Yep. <laughs> there you go. We're not done yet. That's, that's called foreshadowing. <laughs> that's for sure. That's foreshadowing at its finest. Yep. At that time, the flight crew believed that there may be some sort of a computer issue occurring with the aircraft. Since they were getting oil and fuel indications, they were kind of like, okay, there's a few different weird, seemingly unrelated things going on here. So maybe the computer's acting strange. 5.45 a.m. Something disturbing had happened. The crew realized that the fuel level at that time was too low to reach Lisbon for the aircraft's computers. What? Yeah. Yeah, they had the same thought. Yeah. They were oh. like, uh-oh. What? <laughs> something's, something's amiss. Wait a minute. <laughs> yep. They reviewed options for diversions and found that there was an airbase in the nearby Azor Islands called Lajas Airport on Tersaira Island. Oof. I think that's how you pronounce that. I, I'm, I'm assuming that this is maybe Portuguese, and I don't know. Oh, well, yes. So, Tersaira? What? How is it? What? Is T-E-R-C-E-I-R-A. Tersaira. Tersaira, you think? Mm. Okay. 
E I together is A. Okay. A. Okay. Canadian A. That. They decided that that airport was suitable because it had pretty long runway. And it was still some distance away, but relatively close. Closer than Lisbon? Yep. <laughs> by quite a chunk. And they began preparations for the diversion. Around that same time, the lead cabin crew entered the cockpit to discuss the preparations for special services and what to expect in Lisbon. Great! Not knowing at all what was going on. Uh-oh. But boy, was that timing. Because the flight crew then informed that crew member of the situation and the plan to divert, and then asked them to return to the passenger cabin and come back to the cockpit in about 15 minutes for an update. That lead cabin crew member returned to the passenger cabin and instructed the cabin crew, the rest of the cabin crew, to pick up the snack trays and secure the galleys. Just getting ahead of the game. Yep. 5.48 a.m., the flight contacted Santa Maria Oceanic Air Traffic Control to inform them that they would be diverting, and the air traffic controller acknowledged. Five minutes after the lead cabin crew member left the cockpit, they returned for an update. So they didn't wait 15 minutes, they came back in five. The flight crew were alarmed by how little fuel was remaining per their displays and asked the cabin crew to examine the wings and engines through the windows for an, any anomalies, but none were seen or reported hmm. by any of the cabin crew. Mind you, it's still dark. Yes. Outside. So it would have been difficult to really see anything anyways. 5.54 a.m., the flight crew selected the right fuel pump to on and the left fuel pump to off, changing which fuel tank the fuel was being drawn from for use on both engines. So I think part of this was just their troubleshooting because there wasn't really much explanation on why at this time they changed fuel tanks. It didn't really make any sense to me. But all of a sudden they changed from pulling all the fuel from the left tank, which was the heavier one. Yeah. To the right tank, which was the lighter one. Hmm. So maybe they got to the point where they were roughly even, and maybe even below on the left, and they started drawing from the right. I don't know. Maybe. But they switched tanks. 6.01 a.m. The cabin lead returned to the cockpit again, at which time the captain instructed them to prepare for a landing in about 40 minutes. The cabin lead inquired if they should prepare for a landing or a ditching, and the captain responded to prepare for a ditching. Okay, then. They are over the ocean, and this is... Probably wise. The cabin lead then returned to the passenger cabin and began the preparations. The flight crew then contacted the maintenance control again to inform them that the low fuel situation that had been going on, but nobody was able to determine what the issue was based on the information given. While discussing the fuel situation, the flight crew had again switched fuel pumps back to the left tank. A short time later, both fuel pumps were selected, so now they were drawing from both the left and the right again. Okay, so clearly there's something going on with the amount of fuel they have. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to be drawing from the tank that had the most. Yes, so eventually in order they... to balance. Right. And then once they're balanced, you can draw from both. Both. Right. But then they were drawing from the right. Right. And, and then, then back to the left. left and, and then both. It just seems so, like there's a lot of back and forth going on. Yes, and I suspect that's kind of exactly what was going on, is it kept dipping below on one tank and then the other. And once they realized they had them about even, they switched to both. I don't know. It just seems kind of weird that there's no, like, system or something to let them know, hey, you're at about the same level. You can switch it back. Yeah, it's pretty much a numbers thing there. Yeah, They're supposed to watch the numbers. Someone has to look at it. Yeah, I mean, it'll tell them when there's an imbalance, and that probably goes away when they're roughly in the same area. Yeah. But to actually get it to, like, an equal amount, they probably have to just watch. Back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. That said, 6.13 a.m., the aircraft was cruising at flight level 390 or 39,000 feet, 150 miles from Lajas, when the right engine suddenly flamed out and shut down. Hmm. 
The flight crew immediately notified the air traffic controller that they had lost power to the right engine, and they were now descending to flight level 330, or 33,000 feet, because that was the max operating altitude for single-engine operations on the A330. 6.15 a.m., the flight crew informed the air traffic controller that their fuel was critically low. So only two minutes later, they were like, we're not looking good. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. 6.23 a.m., the first officer declared mayday to the air traffic controller. Mm. So about ten minutes later, after the engine flamed out, they were like, this is getting much worse very quickly. Three minutes after that, the flight was flying 65 nautical miles, or 75 statute miles, from Lajas at flight level 345, so they were descending through 34,500 feet, down to 33 when the left engine flamed out and shut down. Huh. All systems shut down at that point. The flight crew would be forced to hand-fly the airplane from that point on. In the passenger cabin, the cabin crew were completing announcements related to the emergency at that time when the power cut out, including the cabin lights, at which time the emergency lights activated. The PA did come back on. Good. We'll talk about this in a moment, about why that happened. But that is something that happened. Like, they were kind of in the middle of completing those announcements, and they got cut out a couple of times. Before everything came back on. The flight crew immediately began the all-engine flame-out procedure, which included deploying the ram air turbine. I was going to say, do they use a ram? (laughs) Yep, a rat. A rat. A rat. A rat. Yep, which provides critical power and hydraulics to some cockpit systems and some flight controls. This is quite literally just a little tiny windmill propeller, just like you would find the giant ones out in the middle of windy places for collecting electricity. Right. This is just a tiny one that provides electricity and thus, basic functions. And thus hydraulics, but it does very little. Yes. Mind if you, you. Remember we talked about the Ram Air Turbine when we covered the Hudson? Right. Miracle over the Hudson. Yep. So this one is literally for the bare minimum required stuff. So it provides the displays on the captain's side of the cockpit, but not the first officer's. It does not perform any autopilot functions. It also does not perform all hydraulic functions. It performs those needed for critical flight control. Right. So yaw, pitch, and roll. That is basically it. Yeah. They established a descent profile aiming for Lajas. So they immediately just put the airplane into the nose descent for... There is a few numbers for this, by the way, and these are things you learn in Piloting 101, but you have best rate of descent, so best angle of descent, and pitch for speed. So basically, they're going for range Mm -hmm. at this point. So they're pitched for range. Five minutes after the power failure, the emergency oxygen masks dropped in the passenger cabin due to the depressurization over time. That makes sense. The pressurization system is really not functioning at this point since they are drawn from the engines. How high are they? 33,000 feet. Oh, okay. At about this time. Really, they were probably below 30,000 feet by the time the oxygen masks dropped. Yeah. But still. Not, they weren't at 10,000 is what I'm no, getting No, they at. were descending at 2,000 feet per minute. So, which is still relatively hefty, but it's not, I mean, it's not totally, not super hefty, but it's relatively hefty. Yeah. 2,000 feet per minute. They were, so they were depressurizing since that they pressurized from the engines and mm-hmm. they are not functioning. So any pressure they had in the cabin was what was there, and it was slowly bleeding. 6.31 a.m., the flight was passed to Lajas Approach Control, so another air traffic controller. Yeah. They still had radio contact, which is still considered critical. The flight had an unheard-of distance to glide in order to make it to that airport, though. This is, I mean, 75 statute miles has never been done up to this point by an airliner to try to make it to an airport. Like, that is insane. Mm Mm-hmm. The air traffic controller provided the flight crew with radar vectors to reach the airport and set up for the approach. 
The aircraft descended and neared the airport. As the airport came into view, the airport staff flashed the runway lights to ensure that the flight crew could see the runway clearly, because this was about, I was saying earlier, the sunrise hours. Yeah. So it was still partially dark. The aircraft was set up on approach for an eight nautical miles final from the threshold of the runway 33 at Lajas. The flight crew realized that they were way too high, though, to make the landing, which good on them, honestly, for yeah. having that much altitude when you're having to glide. Yeah. They were still at 13,000 feet, descending at 2,000 feet per minute. The captain elected to perform a 360-degree turn to the left to lose altitude, which is still a bit of a risky maneuver because if you come all the way around in that 360 and suddenly you're too low, yep, you, got you have no choice yep. at that point. You got a lot of problems. So it is quite the decision to have to make, but they were so high at this point, the risk seemed worth it, and it was. The captain made that left turn. The flight crew informed the air traffic controller of this decision to do the 360-degree turn. The first officer made a public the announcement yeah. over the PA system to the passenger cabin to prepare them for emergency landing and to warn them that they would likely be actually landing on land at this point on or near a runway. Yeah. <laughs> that is the on words. On or near. That is a very... <laughs> That is different, two different things. <laughs> what it said in the report, so that is probably what he told them is like we will actually be making an emergency landing on or near a runway at an airport. Yeah. On land. That's the most important thing. And that it would be in about five to seven minutes. Mm. While they performed the descending left turn, they configured the aircraft for landing. This meant manually extending the landing gear. Yeah. Which gravity. There's usually a gravity drop on these bigger birds because that is some heavy landing gear, which literally usually just pushes the gear doors out of the way and drops and the landing just, gear boop, until and they they, lock. they yeah. slam into the locked position. It is and not a small sensation. No, <laughs> but pray that it works. Right. Yeah, because they can uh, fold back in. Right. On a lot of smaller aircraft, due to the fact that the landing gear doesn't weigh quite as much and, you know, air forces could actually keep them from dropping into the locked yeah. position. On a lot of smaller aircraft, they actually have manual cranks. That makes sense. And it's usually something in the range of like five to 6,000 cranks. Oh! oh. <laughs> that might be a little bit exaggerated, but it's at least usually a few hundred to some thousand cranks. You better hope you have some strong arms there. Frankly. Where is that on a GA aircraft? Usually, depending on the airplane, they're usually in the center somewhere. Okay. I will have to look next time. But it depends on the airplane again. Dang. So it really it really depends on the airplane. Even on airliners they have these sometimes. And there's been instances where I think they I think they did it in UA two thirty two. Where no. Yeah. Because there they? was yeah, because the flight engineer did it. Let me just go back uh, to my notes. They, uh, <laughs> because it didn't I, drop and lock the way it was supposed to, so he went in and did the manual crank, which was in the center of the cockpit, basically. I don't remember that, but that also was almost three years ago. So. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember for sure, but I feel like that was one of the instances where they actually did the. I know we did talk about someone doing a manual crank. Mm -hmm. There are procedures for these aircraft, like the A330, where you have to be in a certain speed range mm -hmm. for it to work, the gravity drop, yeah. to basically ensure, but they certify it to do An it. An alternative system is also available using a lever in the cockpit floor to cause the gear to fall into position. Right. So that's the gravity drop. It depends, yeah, it depends on the situation. This is one of those things that's like, it doesn't get used very often, so I, I won't know for sure, but I know yeah. I've heard like crazy things about these. So it's not a fun thing when you have to use it, but... When they certify this, so they have to prove that it actually op they, they actually it, it be operates doable yeah. on the A330. 
So they prove that within that speed range, it can gravity drop into the lock position, which that means they have to actually go and do it. Yeah. With a test airplane. Yeah. <laughs> so when they were certifying the A330, they actually went and gravity dropped the landing gear while in flight. Can you imagine the life insurance for test engineers? Nope. <laughs> it's already high for pilots. Like, it, it is a question on every single life insurance policy on Earth. Are you in the pilot profession? Like, that is a life insurance question. So that's the thing. This, though, means that the landing gear doors also remain open. Which yes. is not standard procedure, so they add drag, and also, usually when you touch down, they might hit the runway. But it's better than the aircraft, you know, like... Belly landing? Right? Yep. Yeah, completely being damaged. It sure is. They also extended the slats, because it was the one other thing functioning they thing use, yeah. they could use. This, however, meant that the flaps were not functioning. Yeah, but the slats will cause some drag. Yes, they do help. To slow them down. It's better to have the slats than not. Because the flaps are not functioning, because they couldn't, the, the rat just does not it produce power enough much power yeah. for the hydraulics to drive the flaps, which is a very, very heavy process. Once established on the approach again, the flight crew opted to perform some S-turns to continue to lose altitude, so they actually still had plenty once they were lined up again, and they just did a few little light left and right turns in order to bleed off to a bleed little bit. bleed off some altitude, Altitude yeah. to make the runway. It was VFR conditions, so weather was never even a thing in any of this. They had to perform a very speedy approach, though, due to the flaps issue. Just before landing, the first officer made another PA announcement to issue a brace, brace, brace command, at which time the cabin crew took over, shouting the prescribed command to the passengers. Oh, I hate when that happens. I know, it's such a creepy thing. So creepy. They show, like, whenever they show it on air disasters, I get chills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 6.45 a.m., the aircraft crossed the threshold to runway 33 at 200 knots. Whew. That's some speed. Before experiencing a quite heavy touchdown. Uh, yeah. Uh, you could say it's a hard landing. It is a hard landing. That's coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I took your thunder. Nope, it's fine. They experienced a heavy touchdown 1,030 feet down the runway before bouncing back into the air. Uh-oh. And then touching down again a second time 2,800 feet down the runway, so quite some distance so down the they, runway. The biggie they bounced. Yep. Max braking was applied by the captain manually, which locked up the brakes. There was no spoilers or reverse thrust due to all the systems being off. Yeah. So again, not working. there's minimal braking power happening here apart from the wheels. This also meant that the automatic braking system for the wheels, which applies even pressure across all the wheels without locking any of the wheels up, even if they push on the toe brakes like they would normally, like they are in this case. Yeah. It's, there's normally some automatic systems on the A330 that take over that apply pressure evenly Evil, yeah, evenly, and pressure. to make sure that the airplane keeps going straight down the runway and that you're not locking up because that does some serious damage. And we'll get to that in a second. Mm. <laughs> because of the wheel lockups in this instance, eight out of ten tires, all of the main tires, in other words, burst or popped off oh, of the good. wheel rims, which subsequently led to the bare wheels scraping along the runway, grinding them flat, uh. some even through part of the axle. Of the landing gear. Oh, oh my god! god. Mm-hmm. <sighs> the airplane managed to come to a stop 7,600 feet down the runway out of the 10,000 feet they had, so they went pretty good distance down there, but they actually still had another 2,400 feet to go. So that's... I mean, there was still probably a little bit of brown pantsing happening yeah. about halfway down the runway where they're like, are we really going to stop in time? Can you imagine having to evacuate down a slide with your brown pants? Nope. You know what? It's better to have brown pants alive. That's true. That said, the passengers in the cabin began cheering and clapping 
but the cabin crew actually quickly hushed them because they needed to hear any kind of further yeah. instructions once they actually came to a stop. A, some small fires actually started in the left main landing gear, but rescuers and emergency services had responded immediately because they were prepared and they were already there by the runway. Yeah. So they just rushed immediately to the scene as soon as the airplane came to a stop and they put the fires out immediately. The captain then ordered an emergency evacuation, which entailed using the emergency slides at all eight exits. However, the L3 or the left third door, which is right behind the wing, yeah. on the left side, was jammed partway open. It only opened about 20 to 25 centimeters, so the slide also did not inflate properly. Awesome. Passengers were directed to other exits from that one. The evacuation was actually completed in about 90 seconds. Oh, it's supposed to be. Yes. All things considered, because also they had three notes in the report of things that did not go well during the evacuation. One of those being the cabin crew actually had to go around and convince everybody to get off the airplane. There were some people that were like, no, and it reads in the report. Hold on. I'll pull it up. Why are you saying no? Right? Can we talk about that? The airplane's not going anywhere, okay? You got no wheels. The landing gear is... It, there's nothing on the landing gear anymore. I feel the same. I feel the same sentence. I don't understand. Here, here are the three things verbatim from the report that they wrote. Some passengers were reluctant to leave the aircraft and had to be aggressively encouraged to do so. <laughs> Listen, Linda, get off the f- plane, okay? Are you ready to be mad? Oh, no. They Man- their f- Baggage didn't think. Many passengers attempted to leave with their carry-on baggage. <laughs> and the third one, you really can't blame them for this one. One paraplegic passenger located in row one in the forward cabin and an elderly man in row 39 in the aft cabin who could not walk without his cane had to be physically assisted to reach the exit and to get onto the escape. Well, that, that, you really can't do anything about that, right? There's nothing you can do about that. That is, that's it. They that need is help. <laughs> the whole of what you can do. Like, that's not really... They say it's a problem in the report, but that's not really a problem. That is procedure. That's just what happens. (laughs) They have to be assisted. This is an accepted part of what's going to happen if you're in an emergency. I don't understand why people wouldn't get off the aircraft, though. Like, I don't... I don't don't know. know. All that said, they still managed to evacuate the airplane in 90 seconds. Under 90 seconds, they said. You know, that's pretty good. pretty good for an A330 with 300 and some people on board. So, everybody survived. But during the evacuation, two passengers received serious injuries, and 14 passengers and two cabin crew received minor injuries. The hard landing, there it is, and subsequent dragging of the landing gear meant that part of the fuselage was actually damaged as well due to warping of the metal from stress. Yes. So quite literally just dragging the landing gear meant that they were flexing the fuselage as well as, you know, smacking it on the runway. Yeah, that doesn't help either. Yeah. And that's it. They did some damage to the runway. It wasn't actually of much significance, but I did note in the report that the, air, the runway had to be closed for four days because it took them a long time to get the airplane off the runway. Well, don't well there's no wheels it? to help them get it off. And then they needed to fix the patches that were scraped. Yes. And this actually was a problem because this was the lifeline for many goods of this island. Oh, So the island was kind of like, hurry up. Yeah. <laughs> like, we need this. Uh-oh. So that was a whole thing, too. Okay. So uh, what happened? I'll get to it. <laughs> you see, what happened was... What happened was... This investigation was performed by the Portuguese Aviation Accidents Prevention and Investigation Department, or GPIAA, which is the acronym for the Portuguese translation of the department, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. We don't speak Portuguese. No. No. And they had, quote-unquote, extensive help from the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, or TSB. I would hope so, since the airplane originated there, 
with a bunch of and crew clearly and there people was a problem from there. Yep. Stemming it, from it Canada. <clears throat> Both black boxes were recovered. Well, the plane was whole. Yay! I would hope so. And they were undamaged. That's a miracle. (laughs) And they were both functioning properly, according to the BEA, who was the one who had to read them. All the way up until... However. (laughs) There had to be a catch. Both stopped recording once they lost power. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. But it also makes sense. Yes. And if that wasn't enough, the cockpit voice recorder had data from the flight written over once the aircraft was eventually connected to ground power. Yep. As soon as they turned uh, the airplane back on power, they lost about 30 minutes worth of CPR. Uh, yeah. No, more than that. More than that. Way more than that. Oh. Oh. Fortunately, this CVR was capable of recording two hours. That's good. We talked about that recently. Yep. Yes. Instead of the usual 30 minutes. So investigators had 26 minutes of the accident flight and 95 minutes of ground. <laughs> They should have, like, Uh, took the boxes out before they connected it to ground power. This is one of those things that uh, I learned in aviation. And honestly, if anybody's listening to this that works in aviation, should you ever, ever have to deal with an accident airplane or incident airplane, don't touch it! (laughs) (laughs) Don't! (laughs) The investigators need everything they can possibly get for one... If something criminal happened, you want nothing to do with anything touching that airplane. Two, you don't want to interfere with any part of the investigation. Three, you don't want something like this, which might have been an unforeseen thing. They were like, we just need to power it on to move it out of the way. Great. You screwed up. Also, how would powering it on help it move? Well, the only reason they would probably do that is to see what systems are and aren't functioning. And on top of that, once they had it on the wheels, they... Probably wanted to see if the brakes work. No. Yeah. How do you even move that? Once you put new wheels on it, you just hook it up to its so side. So do you put new wheels on it while it's sitting on the They runway? did. That's what took uh, so long. Actually, It's in the not re- like you can just jack an airplane up and put a spare tire on it. Yes. Did they need it? A- yes, you can. Actually, <laughs> that's exactly what you do. Yep, they make giant jacks for these things. Oh, they go underneath the center of the main landing gear post, and you just... <laughs> and then you just pop the old wheel up, put the new one on, just like you would your car. Even if you ground down the rim? In this instance, they had to get a few more parts than some wheels. Yeah. <laughs> they probably had to makeshift a way to get the landing gear up high enough to get a jack under it. Oh, good God. But, okay. Yeah, no, they did. That's, okay. that's all exactly how it works, actually. Okay. And that's part of exactly what it said. It said it took four days, partially because the airplane was sitting there, but not just because they had to replace the wheels, but because it took them a long time to actually get the parts and then the stuff to replace those parts. Because those had to come on a boat. You Probably. Because you can't the run- use the runway. <laughs> yeah. Or a helicopter. You can maybe take a helicopter. Well, that's a pretty true. long flight with a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could have come from another island, but still. Anyway. Is, that's a whole other subject. The FDR records 27 hours, so it did not have this issue. No issues. In total, the recorders missed 19 minutes of the accident flight. Because of this lack of information, investigators leaned on some recommendations that the TSB made in 1999 after the 1998 crash of Swiss Air Flight 111, which we covered in Episode 9. Ta-da! When the fire in that accident caused the recorders to lose power, investigators were in the same kind of bind. So they had recommended giving recorders a power source separate from the generators in the engines and APU. I still agree. 
that would work for a given amount of time after power loss from normal aircraft power sources. Such solutions would include a battery. Yep. An onboard battery of the recorders. Yep. A backup battery. I say that like that's simple, but like lithium ion batteries are very flammable, so... And they explode. Yep. Good luck with that one. All that being said, investigators had the crew! Yay! Okay, but here's the issue with having the crew. But let me let me get, let me go. I got I got this. The crew reported that they had thought there was a fuel imbalance until they realized a little too late that there was a leak somewhere, and they hadn't had the time after that realization to perform the fuel leak procedure. This fuel leak was confirmed on the flight data recorder, and investigators scoured the fuel tanks and lines looking for a leak. It was found in the right engine. Hmm in a fuel line that appeared to have rubbed against a hydraulic line right next to it until it had ruptured from chafing. Bad design, you might say. Yeah, well, well, it's not. How did that happen? Investigators looked into the maintenance records for said engine and found that it had actually been recently replaced. The right engine had arrived at Air Transat on August 1st, over three weeks before the occurrence as the report called this incident. It's undetermined if this is an accident or an incident, but I think it's an accident because this was still pretty severe. I think the investigators officially said it's an accident, mm-hmm. but they often refer to it as an occurrence. So I will say occurrence sure. numerous okay. times. Because there were no immediate installation plans, they did an inventory check, and the engine actually remained under the manufacturer's representative's control. So Rolls-Royce was technically in possession of the engine, even if it was at an air transat facility, which prior to that air transat facility was actually at Air Canada. Hmm. So it's going all over the place. This is kind of normal. I mean, airlines trade parts all the time. You'd be surprised. It's not nothing new. The occurrence aircraft's right engine prior to the occurrence engine was found to have metal particles in the oil. Uh, that's not. No esta bueno. So they did an engine swap. Overnight on August 17th to the 18th. Here's the rub. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm funny. Miranda's on a <laughs> <laughs> She just gave me the most deadpan face. The engines were configured ever so slightly different. Because the new engine had arrived without any immediate installation plans, the inspection of it was rather cursory and didn't dig into any pertinent service bulletins. Turns out there was a non-mandatory service bulletin for these engines, which included a different hydraulic pump, and a cursory inspection is not enough to tell the difference between the two models. The occurrence engine was a pre-service bulletin engine, and most of it, if not all, of Air Transat's fleet had post-service bulletin configured engines. Though it is worth mentioning that the carry forward list, or it's kind of like an inventory list, incorrectly stated that one part, the hydraulic pump, was a post-service bulletin hydraulic pump, even though it was not. So that was uh, someone didn't do their job, right? Correct. Yep. By not detecting the configuration difference while receiving the engines, it was left to the technicians doing the swap to find the mismatch. The technicians did indeed suspect such an issue when they found that there was some interference between the hydraulic pump and the fuel tube of the actual airplane itself. Fuel tube is a flexible line, by the way, and the hydraulic lines are metal. Oh, that makes a little more sense. The lead tech tried to go read the service bulletin on Rolls-Royce's system, but had a network problem. He then Tragic. S- I know. Yep. He then sought engineering guidance by contacting the maintenance control center, who said that the fuel tube needed to be replaced to make it fit. Unbeknownst to them, either of them, 
they actually had to replace both the fuel tube and the hydraulic line, as well as other associated components, which they would have known if they had actually looked at the service bulletin. That Here's the thing about having a network outage. It doesn't happen, like, for a huge extended period of time. Not usually. I mean, we're talking about 2001, so... so who knows? But still. Let's get into it. Part of the reason that they didn't take a lot of time to figure out why the technician couldn't access the service bulletin or just wait until a network problem resolved was that the plane was needed for a flight. Listen, Linda! <laughs> and they needed to clear the hangar for an upcoming event. That, that <laughs> okay, to me is I, a big no-no. I feel like you have an airplane that clearly is not working properly. It probably takes precedent over needing it for a flight and needing the hangar for an event. Yeah. No, no offense to Air uh-huh. Transat, but that, yeah. Yeah. No, all offense to Air Transat, actually. Really, it's, well, it's Air Transat, but it's the company doing the maintenance. Yeah. Which was not. Oh. Air Transat. Oh, I didn't dig that deep. During installation, the technician reported that he had achieved clearance between the fuel and hydraulic lines by torquing a nut while holding the two lines away from each other, so they were tightened in a position that had them separated. Good, great, wonderful. But once the hydraulic line became pressurized... It moved. Uh Uh-huh. And the required clearance between the lines, which is only three millimeters, was no longer three millimeters. It was nothing. They were now touching. Okay, so I have a lot of problems with this. Like, for a lot of reasons. Like, the fact that, okay, they were good enough to realize that this needed a new engine. Great. But they didn't actually verify that this was a post service bulletin engine correct Mm -hmm. and it was marked incorrectly Mm -hmm. correct not their fault but also not going deep enough into actually figuring out the problem i mean they called maintenance when they realized there was a problem and they called and they were like yeah it's wrong they probably should have realized something was off well if the fuel i mean they realized at that point that it was a pre-service bulletin engine right and maintenance told them "Ah, just swap out the fuel line yeah no there's no but i mean the they heard what they thought was correct. I don't blame the technician for that. No, not the technician. I blame the maintenance control maintenance center. Control center. <laughs> well, which I think is Air Transat. Hold on, let me look. I don't know. I, I there's just seems like there's a lot of like there's almost a disconnect. there, yeah. but not quite fit. You know, but I mean the engine thought so too. <laughs> Obviously. Now, I will say, the Mayday episode depicted a bracket separating the two. I didn't read anything about a bracket in my section. They kept talking about it in the episode that it produces a three millimeter gap. The bracket. The What I read from the analysis never mentioned a bracket. Right. I'm not sure about that one. So. It might be Air Transat in this case. Okay. Post-installation inspections were done both by the lead technician as well as another independent inspector, and neither found any issues. But their inspection was not likely to have detected a mismatch in the components, according to investigators. So and they don't fault them during the inspection. If the pumps look exactly like each other, there is no way for you to know that there's two different pumps. Yeah, you literally have to go look at the... You'd have to look at the manufacturing number on the yep. pump. Yep. That, Which... I mean, that's a little... Extensive. I think it was like 974, 976 or something like that. I don't know. Weird. Don't quote me on that. It's in the report. If you care. 
The biggest issue that investigators identified was actually the fact that the hydraulic pump was documented as being a post-service bulletin component instead of what it actually was, which would have been a primary indicator that this was a pre-service bulletin engine. Yeah, I think that that's like the big thing is the fact that that part was not marked correctly. I feel like that's another thing where a person was like, I don't want to do the replacement, so I'm just going to mark it as a post. You're probably not wrong. I hate to say that, but that's probably what happened. And I don't, I didn't read who actually mismarked it because it wasn't Air Transat. Right. That I don't know. It would have been either Rolls Royce or Air Canada. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying that that's, I, that's what I'm very much assuming happened because let's be honest, how else would that happen? It could have been an honest mistake. Maybe. But I mean, if you're looking at the serial number on the part and you know that that's, I mean, Check I it. Don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But like, I, I, it seems to me like that's the one thing that was the big problem. It might also be hard to go look at that number if it's already installed. Yeah. But like, do your job, take it out and make sure. I don't anyway. know. I mean, I realize like airplanes are needed and stuff, but there's a certain point where it's like, clearly this ended up being a problem later. So <laughs> anyway, so the other major part of this analysis was whether or not the crew did something to aggravate the situation. First question, should they have recognized a fuel leak earlier? The oil warnings definitely didn't lend to such a thought, and the oil warnings were not technically dire enough to divert to another airport, so investigators didn't fault them for not doing so. I, was the oil warning like a a fluke? Like, was it an erroneous warning? No, it's actually part of this. The fuel system? Mm -hmm. It actually lends to the fuel system having an issue. Oh, okay. Let, let me keep going. Though. Yeah. Based on the flight data recorder, investigators found that the fuel loss started at 438, but the crew didn't realize the fuel leak until they got the fuel imbalance advisory at 533, almost an hour later. But in that almost hour's time, they had several indications that showed there to be a fuel loss problem. One, the fuel on board was decreasing at an unusual rate, and that information is displayed in the fuel on board page on the engine warning display page. Two, the estimated fuel on board at destination, that is one number, was decreasing. And this information is displayed on the multi-purpose control and display unit. There were a couple of other reasons that I didn't 100% understand because I don't know how planes work. Right. So I'm not going into them. Okay. However, the following factors may have delayed them recognizing a fuel loss problem. One, the only fuel check required by standard operating procedures was done at 458, at which time they were within 1% of their planned fuel quantity. This is something that changed, by the way. Two, during the time they could have recognized the fuel situation, they were focused on position reporting, recording entries in the flight log, and checking instrument indications. They weren't paying attention to their fuel, which is fine. Three, the weird oil readings made them uncertain of the validity of any warnings. Right. Right. Because it seems unrelated. Yeah. It's not. (laughs) I'll get into that in a second. Yep. Once the warning began in earnest, they spent a good chunk of time reviewing manuals and contacting maintenance. And five, the final transfer of 3.2 tons of fuel from the trim tank into the right wing delayed the fuel warning message by 15 minutes. Mm. So because they put more fuel in there, they didn't get the warning for another 15 minutes. This one, honestly, was the biggest issue because by the time they had gotten the warning, they had lost 6.65 tons of fuel. And only had 12.2 left. Oh. They were bleeding fuel out of that hose at a gallon per second. Oh, no. 
That is not That's a small a number. That's a lot of fuel. That is not a small number. Oh, no. No wonder they had an imbalance. Yeah. It was a freaking fire hose of fuel. Yeah. So three minutes after the advisory, the crew started the fuel balancing procedure by memory without checking the quick reference handbook. And they opened the cross feed valve and turned off the right wing tank pumps. By this time, they had 11 tons of fuel left and had lost 7.3 tons. Opening the cross feed valve meant that fuel was being fed from the left tank instead of the right tank where the right. leak was. But the biggest flaw with this plan was the fact that they ran this from memory instead of checking the quick reference handbook, which would have told them a little warning message. And we actually have an A31920 checklist from an American domestic airline of no mention. Miranda, what does that caution read on the fuel imbalance checklist? Anytime an unexpected fuel quantity indication or imbalance condition exists, consider a fuel leak as a possible cause. Do not accomplish this procedure if a fuel leak is suspected. And That's this, unfortunate. This was written on their checklist as well. <laughs> oh, no. Something to that effect. It probably wasn't the exact same verbiage, but it I might mean, have been. it's still there today. That Listen, usually comes direct from Airbus. Copy paste, yeah. Well, that usually comes direct from Airbus and they pretty much copy and paste it. There is a different procedure for fuel leaks. So that you're not drawing fuel. Well, right, because as soon as they started drawing fuel from the left tank, all they're doing is now taking the left tank fuel and throwing it out. Yep. <laughs> at a gallon per second. And they didn't know that. At this point, the fuel on board was seven tons lower than the predicted flight, and the estimated fuel on board at destination was significantly decreased. The crew was aware of both of these warnings. As such, they reviewed all their fuel loading and flight documents for errors and didn't find any. They looked into the engine indications and displays to see if there was a problem with the engine's fuel flow or fuel system, but didn't find anything. Apparently, I didn't read this in my section, but they had also asked the cabin crew to go look at the engines and see if fuel was leaking. Mm -hmm. And they didn't see anything, maybe because it was, um... Dark. Tragic. There were no sounds or other symptoms that would suggest an aircraft structural or fuel problem. Now... I've mentioned I would get to this. It is of note that the crew had not been exposed to a fuel leak problem either in actual operation or in training. Oh, well, that's a problem. Yep. So they wouldn't have known that those oil indications were part of a fuel leak because they'd never been trained on what a fuel leak symptom looks like. Vice versa. Apparently their maintenance control didn't know either. Well, and here's my other problem, too. Like, mm -hmm. normally... You fuel up at an airport. Yep. It's checked. Yep. On the airplane. Mm -hmm. Usually sometimes at this point, maybe also by hand. Yeah. To make sure you have enough fuel for your flight. Mm-hmm. It's usually checked in both engines. Yep. So you would know if you didn't have enough fuel in one engine than the other. Yeah. What they definitely learned from the Gimli Glider. Don't get me wrong. Which we might as well bring that up now. Yeah. That was also Canadian and that also happened. And that was also just well, bad that, math. Well, that was, yeah, bad math, right? So, but this, like... Clearly, the bad math did not happen on here. That was not the problem here. Right. But my point being is usually fuel is checked and double checked to make sure, especially at this point, that you have enough fuel to get to your destination. So when they found the asymmetry in the fuel, even if they didn't realize that there you know, was a fuel leak that had to do with the oil system, mm -hmm. the issue with the warning from the oil system... Why would you immediately not think of it being a leak? Because they weren't trained to. I know, but it, logically in my head I'd go, right. well then how did we lose all of that fuel from the right engine when we didn't have that to start out? And they did though, because they didn't 
they weren't trained on a fuel leak, but they suspected there was one, which is why the captain asked the cabin crew to check. And didn't see anything. They didn't see anything. Yeah. So then they had nothing to go on. They were like, we really don't know. They, they, I mean, at that point, like, how would they know? They can't see any fuel leaking out. Well, would it? They would have it, the indication that the fuel's going down, but they don't have any proof that there's actual fuel leak. Yeah, but if they had done the procedure for the fuel leak instead of for the one for the bleed, right. would it have caused any harm? No. No. But that's why that trains do that. Yes. <laughs> so, other than the quick reference handbook and a couple of indirect references and standard operating procedures, there is no information or training as to how to interpret symptoms to conclude that performing the fuel leak procedure would be appropriate. The crew was inadequately prepared for this situation through no fault of their own. So, because I have this handy, let's go look at the fuel leak procedure. Which, by the way, the fuel imbalance procedure is check the fuel on board, compare the sum of the fuel on board with the fuel used Mm -hmm. with the fuel on board at departure. If the decrease is significant or if the sum decreases, a fuel leak is likely. The next step is to turn on the crossfeed switch. Turn off the fuel pumps for the lighter side and the center tank, and when the fuel is balanced... Turn those back on and turn off the crossfeeds. So that's purely for a fuel imbalance, not yep. for a fuel... The very first thing you do is notify air traffic control. Yeah. Also, note, do not use your reversers for landing, apparently. You then determine the source of the leak. Actually really important because the fuel is bleeding anywhere oh, in the engine. Oh, and fire. Lots of fire. Do yes. not use yeah. your reversers. <laughs> fire. Yeah. If you see any indications that it's an engine fuel leak or pylon fuel leak. It gives a bunch of examples of how you would know that. Um, That determines your future course of action. Fuel leak indications include cabin observation of fuel spray or leak from the wing, or the fuel tank emptying too fast with observed wing leak. If it is suspected to be from an engine or pylon, pull the thrust lever to idle, turn the engine master switch off of the affected engine, monitor the fuel quantity. If the leak is stopped, As required, use the crossfeed switch, and then shut down the engine. So fly with one engine. Yep. If they had done this, which I know you're not done, if they had done this up to this point in the checklist already, if they had done this part of the checklist and they had managed to catch the fuel leak early, probably would have made it to Lisbon on one engine. Yep. Dang. If the leak is not from the engine or pylon or the source cannot be determined, close the crossfeed switch. So do you not don't use it. Dump out all the fuel from yeah, the other don't just engine. Dump, yeah, you've got good fuel tank and engine on one side that's nice and full. Don't just feed that right out of the airplane. <laughs> yeah. Turn off the switches one and two for the center tank pump. Monitor your inner tank fuel quantities. And then you, you have another choice here. If one tank depletes faster than the other by more than 660 pounds in less than half an hour, Move the thrust lever of the faster depleting side to idle. Turn off the engine. Turn the center tank pump switches on. Monitor the fuel quantity. If the fuel leak has stopped, shut down the engine. If the leak continues, consider an in-flight engine restart. If both inner tanks deplete at a similar rate, and if there's fuel odor in the cabin, oh god, <laughs> turn off your APU. It might be that. Hmm. When the sum of the inner wing tank fuel quantities is less than 6,600 pounds, turn on the center tank pump switches. And mind you, this is all related to the baby bus, so the numbers would be different for an A330. Yeah. And I think that's the end of that checklist. Yeah, probably. So there you go. 
So completely different procedure. Completely different procedure. Basically, For very important like, reasons. Turn off the engine. Don't use the engine. Don't use that engine. Don't, don't use, use that fuel. The, don't Save that fuel. fuel for the other engine. Because <laughs> actually, then you'd be able to use that engine not only to get to Lisbon, you'd probably go a lot further. <laughs> All of a sudden, because you're not burning two engines worth of fuel. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what they should have done. But because they did the imbalance one from memory, they didn't see the instructions literally in front of them saying, consider a fuel leak. If you think there is one, use that procedure. Don't use this one if there's a fuel leak. Well, you see, don't so, talk to me. What they, they did. <laughs> so this is literally probably people's like worst nightmare flying over the Atlantic. It's just dropping out of the sky. Yeah. Over the ocean, over nowhere. I mean. And there are plenty of passenger testaments since there were plenty of passengers on this flight and they all survived. And... A lot of people, of course, go through trauma from this because you really think you're going to end up in the ocean and something terrible is going to happen. They were very fortunate in this case. And ultimately, if you ask me, this is far more, I don't know, not, I don't even know the way to put this, is far more interesting and significant to me than even the Gimli Glider. I would say yes, only because the Gimli Glider happened due to bad math, right? Like the Imperial and the metric system, they don't mix well. And if you don't know how to do a calculation and what, you're going to screw something up, which is what happened with the Gimli Glider. That was bad math. They were over land. They had places to land. Yes. And they did. And that airplane didn't didn't even get as damaged. There was less injuries in that one. This was a larger airplane over the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Where you're most likely going to end up in the water. Yep. When you lose fuel. Yep. So, Fun needless fact. to say, the no people point. on board, when they were told that they were, should plan for a ditching and where to find their life vests and everything again, and they were the oxygen masks were dropping and all of these things were happening. This is significant. Which like, this was makes me surprised that people didn't want to leave the aircraft. Right. <laughs> You've already been get through off enough. Thing. I would want to get off that thing as soon as possible. As soon as possible. possible. Yeah, I don't want to keep sitting in the... The the, disa- scary, the disaster? The scary tube. Scary, the disaster tube of scariness? <laughs> this airplane lived out the rest of its service life. It still exists. We'll talk well, about that the, in a little bit. The, any, the only thing that was damaged was the fuel line and the, the landing, landing gear. gear. The landing gear, the landing gear doors. A little bit of warping in the fuselage, which had to be corrected, but... I mean, it was still structurally okay. Yep. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. (laughs) Because there is, yeah, there is some more stuff to go over with that. The Gimli Gimli Glider also lived out its entire service life. So both of these were significant. But we'll go over the history of this airplane again a little bit later on. For now, we're going to take take a a break. break, And and we'll come back. Be back. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We're back. Hello. Hello. Let's do some findings and... Safety actions. Talk about that in a minute. So for some findings, found that the replacement engine was received in an unexpected pre-SB, so service bulletin, configuration to which the operator had not previously been exposed. Yep. They were not aware that that was a thing. 
They found that neither the engine receipt nor the engine change planning process identified the differences in configuration between the engine being removed and the engine being installed. Yep. Leaving complete reliance for detecting the differences upon the technicians doing the engine change, which you really just, I mean, it's not that they might not figure it out. Yeah. But it's not the... It's not ideal. It's not the right way. Right. To do it. So you really can't even blame the technicians per se. No. Because it's not, the onus is not entirely on them. It's just really not. They found that the lead technician relied on verbal advice during the engine change procedure rather than acquiring access to the relevant service bulletin, which was necessary to properly complete the installation of the post-mod hydraulic pump. Yes. Pretty straightforward. That was not great. I mean, verbal communication, okay, but maybe better to have something... Set. I think he was trying to find an alternative solution since he couldn't pull up the bulletin. I imagine so. After talking to that person, I would also try to go back and see the bulletin. Right. Just an idea. That much is true. They found that the installation of the post-mod hydraulic pump and the post-mod fuel tube with the pre-mod hydraulic tube assembly resulted in a mismatch between the fuel and the hydraulic tubes. They found that the mismatched installation of the pre-mod hydraulic tube and the post-mod fuel tube resulted in the tubes being coming into contact with each other, which resulted in the fracture of the fuel tube and the fuel leak, the initiating event that led to fuel exhaustion. I am skipping quite a few findings, by the way, along in all of this. There's a lot. They get a little bit redundant in terms of the service bulletin, so we're just not going to go into that. We know that the service bulletin exists. We know what it's for. We know that it didn't get used right. So right. that's really all that matters. They found that the flight crew did not detect that a fuel problem existed until the fuel advisory, or ADV, was displayed and the fuel imbalance was noted on the fuel ECAM page. So they weren't paying attention to the fuel numbers enough to realize that something was wrong until the advisory drew their attention to it, which was 15 minutes late. Right. And they weren't required to pay attention to it either. Right. Just to be clear. Right. Which is something that changed. Again, we'll get there. They found that the crew did not correctly evaluate the situation before taking action. Okay. They did the checklist by memory. Yes. Not great. They found that the flight crew did not recognize that a fuel leak situation existed and carried out the fuel imbalance procedure from memory, which resulted in the fuel from the left tank being fed to the leak in the right engine. Yep. Just straight out. Just leaving the airplane. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How that engine, the right engine, even continued to operate when the fuel was basically just <laughs> going out, pouring of, out, eating out of that it. means there was enough of it shooting across the gap into the other side of the tube. There must be another fuel line somewhere. I mean, I it did think. say it is a fuel line. It didn't say it's a the, the fuel line. It must be multiple, but this one was significant to be dumping a gallon per second. That's a freaking fire hose worth of fuel dumping out. Yes. That's horrifying. It is horrifying. Imagine that flow rate. What that flow rate's got to look like. Massive. Or how big that hole is. One of the two. Massive. Both. They found that although there were a number of other indications that a significant fuel loss was occurring, the crew did not conclude that a fuel leak situation existed. Not actioning the fuel leak procedure was the key factor that led to the fuel exhaustion. Right. So that's an interesting thing because, talk about it, I didn't see a probable cause, did you? I don't think there is one. Oh. And because of that, this is basically what they're labeling as the probable cause. They're saying not actioning the fuel leak procedure was the key factor that led to fuel exhaustion. I mean, yeah, but also... They're not wrong. Mind you, this flight crew was still hailed as heroes. And we didn't really talk about this much. They got all sorts of awards for this before the report even came out and how we knew what happened, which some people in the industry cringed a little bit when they were getting... but. 
you still can't fault them. They got the airplane safely on the ground. Yes. And that is still incredible. So I still say they did their job. Well, yeah, I mean... Because also they weren't trained for this part of it. And here's the thing. The gliding part of it, the captain was a glider instructor. Ah. Oh, that's handy. (laughs) How's that for... Didn't that happen for the Gimli glider too? He had gliding experience. This guy was very experienced on gliders. He was a gliding instructor. This is like... Perfect. <laughs> if there, if you want any, can you imagine pilot? in that moment being like, "I got this." Yeah, <laughs> hold, on. hold my beer. It's not the same though, and any glider pilot can tell you that. Like, yes, there are concepts that will always remain the same in aviation when it comes to aerodynamics, and that will still hold true when you're gliding well, an airliner. However, have you ever seen a glider? Yeah, the it physics looks completely different. Actually, the physics between how a glider uses. Airspeed and yeah. the wind is going to be very different than an airliner. An airliner yeah. is going to continue to drop like a rock because of its weight. Yes. <laughs> and the wing to weight ratio. <laughs> a glider will continue to float and will use any little bit of wind to pick up. Not yeah. that an airliner can't, but it's probably not going to. Right. Not in any significant way. So that was a really handy thing. Yeah. They found that the post-installation quality control checks following the engine change did not specifically require checking the installation of the hydraulic pump, hydraulic tube, and fuel tube. No. They weren't required to check it. They could have just closed it up, call it done. That would have been an even worse mistake. At least they did try to look into it a little bit. That yeah. probably saved them a little bit. Do you talk about the ramifications later? How so? Air Transat was fined like a quarter of a million oh. dollars. Yeah. They got a massive fine. This is nothing new. They made a massive mistake. I think they accepted blame. They did. Really early in the investigation. Yeah, it was like three or four days or five days or something like that after the accident happened. They were like, yep, we made a mistake. Mind you, because they had the whole airplane and everything, this report, while it took a long time to come out, they knew what happened like that. Yeah. What took so long was the rest of the investigation figuring out you know how, what, how? Right. How this can be prevented, but also how is the mistake so easily made? Right. Air Transat never denied making the mistake once it was found what happened. Which well, good because, for them. Because, yeah, and, and you really can't. They no. didn't try to backtrack on this at any point. And, they didn't train them for this problem. Right. And that is... That's a problem. <laughs> yep. Yep. This was also the largest airplane and is to this day the largest airplane that Air Transat has ever had. It was new to their fleet for the previous couple of years. This was probably one of the first engine changes they ever did on one, too, because they were, if you think about it, if they were only a couple years into service and they're needing an engine change, either whether they got those airplanes secondhand and they used the engines for a lot before that, or you fly them a lot in two years. Yeah. Might just need an engine change. (laughs) Yeah. Then, you know, that's something that they're probably pretty new to at that time. So they didn't really know that these things could happen. But all of that aside, they did have other aircraft. I mean, they had the A310, which was not small. Right. They found that not being able to understand and resolve the unusual oil readings in the right engine contributed to the crew's uncertainty. So again, it's that whole thing of like they didn't understand how the oil indications might have... Told them it was a fuel leak. Told them it was a fuel leak. Yeah. The whole thing with that is that there's not enough fuel flowing into the engine, which actually contributes to the temperature of the engine, which can be read on the oil temperature, as well as the oil pressure. Because when you change temperature, you're going to change pressure. Pressure, yeah. So the oil temperature and pressure both changed. 
And this is a key indication that there wasn't enough fuel flowing into the engine. Right. Welcome, but they didn't know that. Welcome back to beginning chemistry. Yep. Those I'm pretty sure are called Boyle's Laws. Yep. Very simple stuff. But but I can understand how they missed it because normally when you have an issue with a, an oil system, it is isolated. It is an oil issue. It's If you're not trained on it, you wouldn't know that this is an indication that you're not receiving enough fuel. Yeah. They found that there was not a clear, unambiguous indication or warning that a critical fuel leak existed. The airplane didn't have a fuel leak detection system, basically, or programming, which, we'll get to it, that changed. <laughs> there is now a warning in the cockpit for this airplane, as well as pretty much all of them flying in the skies these days, that have digital systems anyways, that tells them when a fuel leak exists. Mm -hmm. Because the fuel tank is draining far faster than the freaking engines are eating fuel. Yeah. Like, you know that that fuel is going somewhere. Yeah. Pretty simple math and a pretty simple system to set up. Very simple, actually. And it didn't take them very long to implement this on the A330 retroactively. They found that the flight crew members had never experienced a fuel leak situation during operations or training, which contributed to their not being able to conclude that a fuel leak existed and that actioning the fuel leak procedure was required. Mm. You may hear some boofs. It's some my boofing. zone. So if you don't know, you're just not going to do anything about it. Nope. Nope. And... You shouldn't be expected to either. Right. They found that the captain's skill in conducting the engines out glide to a successful landing averted a catastrophic accident and saved the lives of the passengers and crew. Yep. Again, he was the right person for the job, given that. But that was a heck of a feat. The longest glide ever done by an airliner. And that is quite the thing. He, he, won, he won records for that one. Yeah. Not the way you want to get it. No. We found that the first officer provided full and effective support to the captain during the engines out glide and successful landing. So they're saying that CRM didn't entirely break down. It really didn't, actually. Actually, CRM was held pretty well in this cockpit. It was just a matter of they didn't have the training where they needed it. Yeah. So ultimately, they still performed the situation very, very well. They were still a very good flight crew. You really can't blame them. They were both a pretty experienced flight crew. So they handled the situation as best as they could, given what they knew and the situation they had. Yes. There were mistakes... But they were mistakes that they didn't know. Like, they just weren't trained for. Yeah. They found that the overwriting of 90 minutes of the CVR recording deprived the investigation of data that could have resulted in a clearer understanding of the underlying factors to this occurrence. Maybe. Maybe not. I feel like we pretty much figured everything out anyway. Yeah, I wasn't super concerned. No. It is something that I felt that they were just more trying to draw attention to. Like, just don't do that. Like, hey, you made our lives harder. Can <laughs> yeah, you not? Just don't do that. They found that jamming of the L3 emergency exit somewhat hampered the evacuation of the aircraft. But 90 seconds, if that's true, that's one of the better ones we've ever talked about. And the injuries, okay, yes, but we've talked about this before. Anytime you initiate an emergency evacuation using the slides, you, someone's going to get hurt. You instantly take the entire time the responsibility that people are going to get hurt. It's inevitable yes. at that point. People always get hurt during slide evacuations. That is always inevitable. They found that having three Portuguese speaking flight attendants enhanced passengers understandings of the safety briefings being given in preparation for the anticipated emergency ditching see, and actual land evacuation. See, this is the part of the world where it's like we all speak like three languages. Right. Yep. Listen to the safety briefing and it works. And at this time, there weren't really cell phones. So they listened. Well, that and it's what a concept. It's again, nice that the crew spoke Portuguese. Yep. Also or at least thing. some of them did. Yes. Yep. Enough of them, probably. Yep. One more finding. 
We found that the logbook entry detailing the installation of the fuel line from the replaced engine was not recorded. Well, that's unfortunate. Probably something should be in the logbook, but it wasn't done correctly. Now, don't get me wrong. Logbook keeping on engines and aircraft is a, literally a full-time job for a lot of people at a lot of airlines. Uh, and this is no small feat by any means, because it is a complicated thing to have to understand how to document these things, what needs to be documented, what doesn't, who needs to perform each job, who needs to sign off on it. There's a whole lot that goes into the legalities behind these logbooks, because it is the one legal document you have about everything done to the airplane and the engines. Yes, so, correct. Safety actions. Yay! No probable cause, like I said, at least not that I could find. Let me see if there is one. Hold on. I did not find one. Negative, Batman. It's all safety recommendations. There was uh, safety recommendations and safety actions. So I am not doing safety recommendations. And the reason I'm not doing them this time is because they are nearly identical to the actions that were actually taken before this report was put out. And so there's not much point in me reading what they recommended versus what actually happened. So I might as well just tell you what actually happened since it's all the same. True. And I'm only reading the important ones, but they did change a lot of things, actually. There's a lot having to do with auditing. There was a lot having to do with checks. There was a, there's so many things in Which here. is a lot of Nick's job. Yep. So we're going to get into the things that really changed that really mattered. As a precautionary measure, immediately following the occurrence, Transport Canada suspended Air Transat's Extended Range Twin Operations, or ETOPS, authority, effectively requiring its A330 overseas flights to alter their routes to remain closer to suitable en route airports. That makes sense. The ETOP suspension was to remain in effect until Transport Canada satisfied that safety deficiencies no longer existed. What they're talking about there, and this is pretty key, the reason I left this one in here is because they literally suspended them from flying with ETOP certification, so they couldn't fly long distances, but far away, more than, I think it's 120 minutes or something like that, from the nearest airport. Because they didn't trust that Air Transat had everything in place to do an emergency like that should they need to do it again. In this case, they got lucky, basically. But should a similar situation occur again, the crew didn't know how to handle a fuel leak, and they were an hour short of the Azores, Yeah, they would have ended up in the ocean. Just like that. So it's one of those things that was really important. They were saying they need to remain closer to airports until they have the safety net in place where the crew is trained for this kind of stuff and they actually can handle the situation. On the 28th of August, 2001, at Transport Canada's request, so this is only four days after the incident, Canadian air operators inspected all of their A330 aircraft to ensure that the same mechanical conditions that may have contributed to the Air Transat emergency landing did not exist on other aircraft. In other words, the engine. Yep. That whole hydraulic pump on the engine. They checked every single one of them in Canada's control to make sure that the same situation did not exist. And that's just four days after the accident that they implemented that. That is quick timing. That they is, were serious. They were serious, which is good. It's good to hear. On August 30th of 2001... Transport Canada directed Air Transat to immediately implement special training sessions on extended range operations, fuel management, and diversion procedures. So within six days of the accident, they already had implemented Air Transat going through retraining for all of their A330 and long-range pilots, period, on how to do ETOPS operations and the key things they need to know for safety. And that... This is was all really <clears throat> quick movement. It was, because they really figured this out really quick. 
something that we kind of found out when we watched the episode and we were looking for flow yes. for your part. It was like, no, they really just kind of done. <laughs> the report took forever, but the and everything actually, what, what happened was figured out very quickly. As of when the Mayday episode came out, the report was not yet out. Exactly. They kept saying like, oh, the report hasn't been issued yet. And we're sitting here like, uh, yeah. It has <laughs> but they had been. already figured everything out, basically. I mean, they figured everything out within a very few number of days. Transport Canada recommended that a human performance in aviation maintenance course be given to Air Transat's maintenance personnel. Air Transat provided this training through the Boeing Aircraft Corporation. This is just as a whole human factors yes. for maintenance personnel specifically. So when it comes to you find yourself in a situation where you're like, well, this doesn't look right, but I don't understand why. Okay, but we have the pressure of trying to get this airplane out the door. Why doesn't this look right when this is the way it was set up previously in the other engine? Maybe you're supposed to take the time to actually look into it instead of the human factors piece, which is, I don't care, let's get this airplane out the door. All the pieces are in place to operate the engine. Okay, but not safely. So that's, that's a human factors piece. And unfortunately, it's not realistic to say, let's get rid of all outside factors because that's never, never going to actually happen. Never. And that's something that you accept as part of human factors. But human factors training is to help you reduce those safety issues as much as possible. Yes. Transport Canada provided regulatory guidance and assistance in the development of Air Transat's safety management system. So literally, apparently, well, the equivalent of Canada's FAA, Transport Canada, literally helped Air Transat write their own SMS. Yes. They helped them create their safety management system so that it works. Tied on to that, in November of 2003, Transport Canada performed a regulatory assessment of the SMS to determine Air Transat's progress and effectiveness in the program. So not only did they help them write it, but they kept checking on it to make sure that it was effective. As is regulated to do. Yes, exactly. But this is great. At least, sometimes it's hard to even get the FAA to help with these kinds of things. Usually they just regulate it. So it's one of those things where it's like, at least... Transport Canada took the time to be like, no, we're going to help you put this together the way the regulation says. That's good. Additional training was conducted for its A330s. This is in regards to Air Transat. Additional training was conducted for its A330 crews on the fuel system, identifying lost fuel, the functioning of the cross-feed system, and the checklist for fuel imbalance and fuel leak. So everything that the crew didn't understand, Air Transat trained. Fuel leak scenarios have been integrated into the initial and recurrent theoretical and simulator training programs. Thank God. All company aircraft, not just the A330, which is wonderful. Standard operating procedures on waypoint fuel checking have been standardized between all fleet types, emphasizing a requirement to verify that the sum of fuel on board and the fuel consumption are consistent with the fuel on board at takeoff and flight planned fuel burn estimates. This means that at more than just one point along their route, they're checking fuel. Is it at every waypoint? That's the that's what I get out of that. On waypoint fuel checking. Okay. That brilliant. <laughs> that means you're checking at every waypoint along the way, which to be fair, they were over the ocean and there aren't many of them. <laughs> you're probably on a very long transatlantic airway. So, but point being, they check fuel a lot more regularly. Just a few more. This one's kind of a long one, but I did feel that it was very important. On the 13th of November, 2002, the DGAC, which is France's FAA, provided Recommendation Bulletin BR 2002-48B to civil aviation authorities with responsibility for A330 and A340 aircraft. 
The purpose of the bulletin was to recommend a modification of the flight warning computer, pin programming, compatible with a new FCMC standard, in accordance with Airbus Service Bulletin A330-28-3080, in order to activate crew alert, quote, fuel FU slash FOB discrepancy. Fuel burn. Fuel used versus fuel on board. Right. Fuel used versus fuel on board discrepancy. That means there's a fuel leak. They actually have yes. an indication in the cockpit that there's a fuel leak. An actual warning of a fuel leak. It doesn't say fuel leak, but that's what that says. That's not a few indications that leads you to believe that is. That is the verbiage for a fuel leak. Mm-hmm. When activated, this fuel leak monitor will alert the flight crew of a discrepancy of more than 3,500 kilograms or 7,700 pounds between the initial fuel on board the aircraft and the total of the present fuel on board plus the fuel used. That's a huge discrepancy, though. If you're going to wait to get to that. Yeah, but when we're talking about ETOPS, that's what matters. When the aircraft is in typical cruise altitude and configuration. So way up high, they've got the glide distance and everything. But that's enough to start making enough of a difference. And yes, that sounds like a lot. But also, we're talking, they were burning an insane amount of fuel off. And this happens very quickly. So that amount of fuel is relatively reasonable number, if you ask me. Because we're talking about they burned off, what was it? They ended up using... Almost 20 tons worth of fuel just right out that hose. I believe it was 17 tons in 30 minutes. Yeah. That's insane. On the 29th of August 2001, Airbus issued an all-operators telex, A330-73A3033, requiring a one-time visual inspection to verify that no interference exists between the fuel and hydraulic lines on all A330 aircraft equipped with Rolls-Royce 700 series engines. All A330s across the world were inspected for this. Every single one of them. This also basically was a tack on to that service bulletin that already existed about it, where they said, everybody check immediately, and then when you get a new one, remember this service bulletin. Yeah. Retroactively, this could have been an issue, but going forward, because you're going to get out of those old engines, this isn't going to be an issue for terribly long, because there aren't a whole lot of them out there. On the 21st of May, 2002, Airbus issued Service Bulletin A330-28-3080, Fuel FCMS AC, or Activate Crew Alert Fuel FU slash FOB discrepancy. The Service Bulletin provides the instructions for the installation of the necessary wiring provisions and gives instructions to modify the pin programming of the FWC to activate the FUFOB warning. Modification number such and such. Accomplishment of the Service Bulletin provides the flight crew with a warning of the significant fuel loss in the event of a fuel leak. This warning does not supersede the fuel monitoring procedures that now exist for the flight crew. Compliance with the service bulletin is recommended by Airbus. So, again, this isn't an AD. Right. But because it was a service bulletin and because of this accident and the severity of it, anybody who was operating in the A330, this was a super simple fix. Yeah. They needed very basic sensor wiring, and they gave them the exact installation instructions on how to do it to put the sensor in place to then program into the system how to do an FUFOB warning so that they know when there's a leak. Yeah. And this just produces the warning immediately for the crew. So it would have saved them that 15 minutes. Yeah. As well as maybe even a little bit more because they burned off quite a bit of fuel by that 15-minute mark. So this is really 
This is the last one of them reading because this is really the key thing to me that changed. And that right there tells them that they have a fuel leak, so they would have done the right procedure, they would have known ahead of time, and this never would have been a problem. Right. And it isn't ever since. So. And there you go. That's it. That's it. Friendos, that's it. We have like three. Oh, yes. Questions. Questions. So I'm going to read those. Yes. So the first one's from Lieutenant Spock of the USS Enterprise. Hello, Lieutenant Spock. It's on episode 148, which was the Korean air. Ah, yes. So he says, so there I was. So there I was. Listening to your Korean Airlines 007 episode and suddenly got called about my no questions please story, which made me laugh. I loved it. (laughs) Yes. The Korean Air 007 story hits home for me. I've flown patrol missions in international airspace, question mark. Uh Uh-huh. Explanation mark. Sorry. It's tiny. Okay. Adjacent to Russia before. It's unsettling to imagine that my radar blip could be confused for someone else as late as the 80s, leading to the issuance of an order to shoot me down. Right. Nowadays, naturally, we have GPS. In addition to extremely precise ring laser gyro inertial reference units. Yep. Which combine their outputs to produce a very accurate navigational solution. Thanks to events just like Korean Air 007, we also have very precise procedures and guidelines for interacting with aircraft of an unfriendly nation. During intercepts, the Russian or Chinese fighters will usually... I'll finish reading this one. We'll yes. usually form up on our wing, take some pictures, evaluate our configuration, including weapons loadout, and head home before long. This is a safe and professional, quote-unquote, intercept event. When things get a little hairier, we call them, quote-unquote, unsafe and or unprofessional intercepts. Maybe Ivan tries a little maneuvering and cuts across our nose, forcing us through his wake turbulence for a moment. Or maybe, insert mildly pejorative Chinese name here, (laughs) gets a little too close to our wingtip and restricts our ability to maneuver around the very distinct airspace boundaries we observe. One time, a Ruski fighter jock literally took his hands off his controls in his cockpit and used his hands to make a heart shape. He then started blowing kisses to the female aircrew operator in the plane's side window. Ever the professional, she got everything on camera and we laughed at this audacity. (laughs) It's the audacity. The audacity. It's the audacity for me. (laughs) Personally, I have only ever experienced one borderline quote-unquote unprofessional encounter, where Ivan pulled level, cockpit to cockpit with my plane... Maybe 30 yards apart. We got it all on video and expected that he'd try to make us turn away from him. As a matter of fact, we needed to turn into him for airspace considerations. So my pilots simply banked extremely gradually to the left, keeping our eyes on him, and he took the hint and backed off, following us to complete the turn. Crucially, the interceptors need to get the message that scooting with us doesn't distract us from completing the mission. The other takeaway is that these fighter interceptor pilots are extremely skilled. They're good pilots doing their job as we do ours. I can respect that. That and what annoys me is when they try to mess with us unnecessarily. International airspace is just that, international. When you fly inside someone's air defense identification zone, or ADIZ, you expect that you'll be intercepted, but it doesn't need to escalate. Correct. Anyway, I know you guys don't do military accidents normally, but the Hainan Island incident is maybe worth looking up. A U.S. EP-3 was doing a patrol off of China and got intercepted by a furious Chinese pilot who got too close, clipped a prop, and exploded in air. 
Dang. The EP-3 had to make an emergency landing on the very airfield from which the deceased Chinese pilot departed. Pretty embarrassing incident all around. As always, love your show. Keep your airspeed up. Thanks. I knew you would chime in on this, and I appreciate that you did. <laughs> yeah. Because I was waiting for this, actually, because this just proves my point that I made in that episode, which is that modern intercepts, they're very cordial things, usually, actually. It's very much, a, they don't want to engage. Nobody yeah. wants to engage. It's very much like a professional atmosphere. If you're going to intercept, you're just going to lead them away. Yes. And that is the end of the story. It does not need to escalate beyond that. And that's the whole point that I was trying to make there. And that's why this incident with Korean Airlines was... was so sc- not great. It was out there. I mean, sure, he seemed like he was making an evasive maneuver, and he was definitely in the wrong place. Oh, yeah. But I feel like he, the pilot, the fighter pilot, also didn't use enough techniques to get their attention. So that was a whole thing. Yeah. Next questions from our listener, Ron. It's about episode 24, so pulling it way back. If you don't remember what episode 24 was about, it was about Tenerife. And he asks, what time did Las Palmas reopen after the bomb incident on the 27th of March, 77? I did some preliminary research. I'm pretty sure Christy's trying to look it up right now. Um, no, 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 I am not. I oh. was looking up the Heinen incident. Oh, I can look it up. But even on the page, it doesn't really say. It said that the accident occurred at about 4:40 p.m. so it had to have reopened previous to that it said that they reopened the airport after they contained the bomb after it went off so i can't really find for sure an exact time and i don't remember if we covered it in the episode maybe it was on the air disasters episode but i imagine it's somewhere let me see because i feel like i have read the time at some point I thought we did in the in the previous episode. So if you didn't listen to episode 23 because you wanted to hear what happened in episode 24. Maybe we said it. Maybe we said it. I, I'm going to be honest. That was like a really two and a half time. years ago. <laughs> right. So it's been a long time for us, but it had to have been previous to 4.40 p.m. their time. At right. the Canary Islands. And it said, I looked at the air disasters page and I don't remember what it said. I think it was like around 11 o'clock or something that the bomb went off or something like uh, that. One fifteen. One fifteen. So it had to be between one fifteen and 4.40. Right. <laughs> that they opened the airport back up. Right. Somewhere so. in that range. Not entirely sure. Thank you for the question, though. Yes. That is a good one. And I will try to keep seeing if I can find anything on it, but I have not found anything on it. I'm looking through my notes mm-hmm. from so, the air disasters episode. While they do that, the next one's from Anonymous. Okay. Anonymous. Uh, And then it was an episode we covered about a long-haul airplane in an old airplane. I think it was the Pan Am. Anyway, because they don't remember either. (laughs) Okay. They say, it was mentioned that on one of the flights, the plane had games, like a whole deck for them. Like the the deck, like the lounge. Ah, yes. Uh, This flight took place in a time when video games were not mainstream, and I figure playing billiards or bowling on a plane would not work out very well. So my question is, what games were on the flight? Card games. It's primarily card games. And board games. games. And board games. Chess was actually a regular one. Checkers was a regular one. But card games were pretty easy because they Was this for the Gene Roddenberry flight? Yes, actually it was. I think so, yeah. Yeah. We talked about that for that. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I'm like, it crashed in a desert. I remember we that yeah. about that episode. Yep. Because this is this is very typical of the Stratocruiser. Yes. It had that under level lounge 
for yeah. games. And also, even the DC-6, on a lot of DC-6s, they actually put a lounge at the rear of the airplane where you could go, and there was seating, and you could there was a table, and you could play games. So this wasn't even abnormal on single-deck aircraft. This was, at the time, this was relatively normal. I mean, very long flights at relatively slow speeds. What, and there, was, there wasn't do? TV or anything, so it's like... Would there be a foosball table? No. <laughs> That's too heavy. And it's too much space. It's not enough space for that. So, also, do pilots need passports? Yes. yes they absolutely. Do need passports. And do. their passports can be taken away, which we talked about in the episode that came out last week. Yeah. I don't know you if get this confiscated. Is, I don't know if this is the case for other countries, but I know for the U.S. you can get a, an extra large passport book. Yes, most countries have an extra large passport book you can get. Along with the extra large passport book, a lot of countries have, you have to have the passport, but you can also get a different form of entry depending on the country. Yeah. So it depends on what you're doing. So like here in the United States and Canada, we have what's called global entry. Yeah. Which allows you when you get to customs to basically kind of skip the line. They have now kiosks that will handle these global entry cards. It's a much faster way to get through, but you still have to have your passport. Yes. It is still required because should you find yourself in any legal problems, should you find yourself, you know, abroad and you need to go to a different country, you have to have that passport. It is just absolutely critical. You never know the situation. So pilots absolutely have to have a passport. Hands down. Hands down. Yep. But they can get the extra large passport. So that you can fill it with more stamps and such, and you don't have to replace it as often. But if I also understand your question, not all pilots have to have a passport. Because if you work for a very small regional carrier or domestic carrier, you probably don't need one. You probably won't be flying to another country. But should you work for any of the larger carriers, and that really goes for pretty much all of them. So that is United, Delta, American, Frontier, Spirit, Southwest, any of those you probably have to have it because you never know. They're good. It's just easier for them to take any flight crew that's qualified on the airplane and send them on any route. Also, listen, you should really just get your passport. Yeah. It's just a smart thing to do. Honestly, every pilot has one anyways. I've not met a pilot, even like small prop birdies, that doesn't have a passport. Right. Because the whole point of being in this career is you it's, like to you travel. You travel. Yeah. <laughs> so I've not met a pilot yet that doesn't have a passport. So yes, you... You have to have one in almost every case. Now, there are, of course, small airlines and small operations. And if you are a pilot, in general, you don't have to have one. Like if you're a It's GA, not a requirement. If you're a GA pilot, you don't have to have one. But actually, it's so much easier if you do. Yeah. It actually even makes the application process for your pilot certificate far more easy. That's how Brendan found out that his passport was incorrect. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> his flight instructor caught it on yeah. his passport. And he had traveled internationally with, with that his thing. passport. Yep. <laughs> it well, was incorrect. I, I did find out that the U.S., and it's actually a global rule, that spelling errors on passports, should it be obvious that there is a single letter change or a swap of letters or something like that, it is legal to travel with that passport. Hmm. Well... Isn't that strange? Yes. You would think it would have to match perfectly. Yeah. But actually, it is legally allowed. Hmm. Brent Nan. Brent Nan. Brent Nan. <laughs> anyway, that was anyway. Air Transat Flight 236. Boom. Got it. I looked it up, so. Okay. Don't, don't Cheater. Be, don't Cheater. be too excited. Thank okay. you so much for listening. We have to do a patron Zoom call now. Yep. Again, if you want to be part of that in the future, you have to be a flight crew level patron or a $20 patron. Yep. And then we're going to do a post episode probably after that. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you all next time. We hope you have a great week and a good rest, healthy, safe, all that stuff. Catch you all next time.
Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.